0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. What a difference a week makes. I don't think many of us could have imagined the headlines in sports and outside of sports that we're seeing today with virtually the entire sports world completely shut down, closed for business. And of course, as I've watched that happening, I've been wondering, like a lot of other people, What the future holds for the Olympic Games this summer in Tokyo. I know the Prime Minister of Japan has said that the Games are going to go on, but I'm not so sure. And like many of you, I have so many questions that I don't seem to be able to find an answer for. So I decided this week to have Stephanie Zaza, who's the president of the American College of Preventive Medicine to talk about that, to talk about these sports closings, to talk about why this is important, to ask her if this is a big overreaction like I keep seeing, and to talk about what the future holds for the 2020 Olympic Games. Stephanie is formerly with the CDC. She's been intimately involved with the public responses to H1N1 and other infectious disease outbreaks. She is board certified in public health and general preventive medicine, and uh, she has a lot of great insight into what's going on today, what we can expect, and she has, as I'm publishing this, what is maybe a shocking um, possibility for how long this is going to go on, but By the time you hear this on Tuesday or Wednesday, it may already be accepted uh, belief. Anyhow, here is my interview with Stephanie Zaza. I'm thrilled to be joined now by Stephanie Zaza, who is the president of the American College of Preventive Medicine. Stephanie, it was just a week ago that the NBA was playing games and college sports were happening. And suddenly, with the decision by the NBA to to stop sports, the entire sports world is shut down. And a lot of people were very quickly wondering if this was overreaction. Was that overreaction?
1: Well, I don't think so. Um, what we're finding is that in one week, lots of things got shut down, not just sporting events. And these were all related to the attempt nationwide to do something called social distancing. Um, it also could be referred to as physical distancing, since in this uh, new world order of social media, we can stay connected to each other through media such as this podcast. Um, but what we're trying to do is limit the number of people who are gathering um, during a pandemic like this with really two big aims in mind. One is to reduce transmission in the community so that you have fewer cases. Um, If you have fewer cases overall, you'll have fewer severe cases. And if you have fewer overall cases, you can potentially bring the outbreak to a much quicker halt. The second big reason is that if you slow transmission of the disease in the community, you really reduce the strain on the healthcare system. So with a uh, disease like what we're seeing with coronavirus that can cause very severe illness that requires hospitalization with intensive critical care measures, hospitals can become very quickly overwhelmed. So you want to, we've seen a lot in the news recently about flattening that curve. So you might not, you might not create fewer cases overall, but you might spread them out over a longer period of time and if you do that, The hospital has to deal with fewer cases at once. Um, It helps the hospitals cope. And there's another benefit. So you not only reduce deaths from the pandemic illness, but you reduce illness and deaths. You don't necessarily reduce illness, but you can reduce deaths from other causes. So when hospitals are overwhelmed, they can't do other surgeries. They can't do other care for people if their ICUs are full. So those are the two big reasons why we do this. And it's not just sports, as I said, it's, it's all kinds of gatherings where people come together and can potentially transmit the virus from person to person.
0: I saw somebody from uh, the Obama administration, uh, you know, reiterating a lot of what you said, but one of the things struck me, and he said that he wasn't convinced, um, and forgive me, I can't remember exactly who it was, but he wasn't convinced that school closings were actually a good idea. Um, In this this pandemic, what you're seeing, are school closings a good idea?
1: Well, interestingly, school closings are the one place where we actually have really good evidence that it works. Um, You know, schools can be um, a natural place for transmission because people tend to be in, the students and, and faculty tend to be in close proximity to each other for intensive amounts of time. Um, and particularly at the university college level or boarding schools where kids are living together, uh, you also have that situation. So these are places where people gather on purpose to work together um, and to talk and to uh, uh, communicate physically. So you're you're in this this space. So there are good uh, there is good evidence. There are a lot of studies that show that school dismissals or school closures, are can be effective in the ways we said that they reduce community transmission and prevent the spread in a community Um, the the balance though is and this is where the caveats come in these measures these social distancing measures are effective only if people do them so the challenges with school closures and sometimes the criticisms about school closures are that older students who are able to will just reconvene somewhere else Um, these are social beings children and teenagers especially and they will find ways to to gather in other situations and that's one thing that you have to actually try to figure out how to remedy and the most vulnerable kids the ones who receive a lot of their food from school you have to find ways to still feed those kids so the critics of school closures are looking at these potential harms or the things that make it impossible for kids to to really truly socially distance so you have to find ways to ameliorate those other effects Um, and it's one of the downsides of social distancing measures of all kinds is that uh, you have to be able to show that the benefits outweigh the harms and people have to trust that not only will it work, but that those benefits will outweigh the social and economic challenges that they will necessarily face.
0: God, I have another 5,000 questions for you. Go ahead. Uh, okay. So, uh, so I'm what... in
1: isolation. So you can go ahead and <laughs> keep me on
0: all day, <laughs> all the time in the world. Yeah. Um, so, what one of the things that I'm gathering is that so I hear this number, the ha- half of Americans are going to get this or two thirds of Americans are going to get this. And what I'm hearing from you is that 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 will probably happen, whatever the number is, regardless, what we're trying to do is slow down how fat, how many people reduce, how many people have it at the same time so that the healthcare system doesn't get overrun.
1: Yes, I, that is definitely true. Um, but the first point is that the models that say, you know, one in two or one in three people will um, get the disease are based on what was happening when they did the model. So they have to keep updating those models as these social distancing measures go into place because that may change the parameters of the model. If you can slow it down to the point where fewer and fewer and fewer people are infecting each other. it is possible that it could burn itself out more quickly and then fewer people do get infected overall but that's that requires really effective social distancing for probably a pretty long period of time so that's the first point the second point is exactly uh, what you said if you can slow it down what it does is it reduces the number of people who are all getting sick at the same time because that's what overwhelms the health system and i i think when when people are um, expressing this idea that maybe we're overreacting. It's that they, uh, by virtue of this social distancing, can't see the effect of what's happening inside those healthcare systems. So there is likely to be quite a lot of juggling to make sure that the health system is able to take in whoever needs to be cared for. That means not just space, not just beds, but the kind of personnel who know how to take care of very sick pa- patients uh, and the, the resources, not just the number of beds, but the number of ventilators, the number of disposable items that you use with every single sick patient, um, the supplies, the medications to support those patients. So there's a lot going on inside those healthcare systems right now to take care of sick people and to ramp up to take care of even more sick people so for instance today we're starting to see reports of people's elective surgeries being canceled this is part of what hospitals are being confronted with right now to say we have to be ready so the more we can spread out the illness the better it will be for those healthcare systems to be able to manage everybody who needs to get care if and when they do get severely sick with this particular virus
0: depending on the sport and the sports league um, competitions have been canceled through the end of March or, or mid April or the end of April, or some of them have canceled all the way through the rest of the school year. And and you you talked about, you know, at some point, we're going to know if this is working. How long is it going to take to know if this is working?
1: It's going to take a while. Unfortunately, I think part of the challenge with all of these types of measures is that they don't they don't work overnight, um, and it's going to take a little while to see the effects of this and to know that the communities in which these interventions are being taken are working. I can't I don't really have a, a crystal ball on this, but I think you have to wait. Um, it's going to take a while. I think that I saw something today that Tony Fauci at NIH said something like eight weeks might be the soonest we even see whether or not this is working. Some of it, too, is that you need a little time to look back at the data, right? You're not getting the data exactly in real time, so you have to have a little time to collect and, and analyze and figure out what's happened over the past couple of weeks in order to look at that curve. What we call an epidemic curve is the number of cases per day in a community. And so you have to look to see where that starts to really peak and then come down and come down on the other side. And then then maybe we'll see. Often what we'll do, unfortunately, this is really an, in retrospect is we take those curves and we look at when different measures got put into place and which ones seemed to interrupt the modeled expectation. Um, but that is something you can really only look at in hindsight.
0: So let's suppose I know you you, you don't want to start throwing out dates and numbers, but let's let's take Dr. Fauci's number of eight weeks. Would that mean that this social distancing that we're involved in the shutting down of restaurants and bars, sporting events, would that mean that this is going to go on for for eight weeks at least?
1: I think it depends on the community. So smaller communities, for example, that are able to track their cases pretty closely and um, see effects, might be able to, to take some different actions. Um, it depends a lot on how good your data are. If you can get diagnosed cases and you, you ha- are able to test a little bit more, you have a better sense of what's happening in your community. So I think it depends on a number of factors how long you'd have to put measures in place. It's not easy one of the big questions always is if we close so for example take school closures if we close the schools how do we know when to reopen that's a really tricky question that we're asked all the time in public health and it's unfortunately can be we're going to have to just keep an eye on things and let you know when we think it's safe so I think that that's a, a real challenge with all of these measures because it is so incredibly disruptive to all of our social systems and to our economy.
0: Okay, everybody, we're just going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Stephanie Zaza. So we're back with Stephanie Zaza. One this is one of the questions you were just talking about before the break. How do we know when to go back because for me, you know, people, know that, you know, in a couple of weeks or 4 weeks All it takes, from my perspective, is one person with the the virus to walk into a sporting event or a bar, and all of a sudden 10 people leave with it, and the engine starts up all over again. Is that accurate? I mean, do you have to eradicate the virus before you can start life as normal again?
1: Well, we started this podcast by saying how quickly these decisions have been coming about on this end. right. So I think what's going to happen is that we'll start to see maybe a slower um, re-entry into society and as things happen there'll be small test cases. Let's see what happens if we open this up and let's see what happens if we open this up and if we're able to keep a handle on the number of cases if we're better able at that point to do better testing um, we might be able to open more things because we'll be able to jump in and test and close things down fast as well. So I think it's sort of ramping up really quickly on this end. Um, as we start to see maybe a slowdown in the number of cases, we start to reopen things and really watch closely and jump on any new outbreaks as fast as we can and then begin those sort of social isolation processes in that particular community again. So I think it's what what these measures are allowing us to do right now is temporize the, not only for the healthcare system, but for the public health system to catch up, to gather more data, to get more tests, testing capability up and running, uh, to allow for some thoughtful time t- about when we reopen things. It, in a way, because we hit spring break timeframe for a lot of schools, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, you can add on to that, um, and it, it gives more organizations more time to do a little bit of planning. And then as i said you kind of slowly start to reopen things and then start doing rapid outbreak investigations and testing and uh, collecting data to make sure that that you stop any new cases one of the challenges of course is that this particular virus presents like can present like a cold so it can be a little bit hard to know so i think we're going to have to um, figure out using this time right now to figure out some of those what I might call re-entry protocols for for when we start to open things back up.
0: The Olympic Games start in Tokyo at the end of July. So that's that's a little over four months away. Um, What do you think are the chances that an event of that scale, an international event is going to happen four months from now?
1: I wish I knew. I, you know, like most people, I'm a huge fan and love watching the Olympics. And it's—I I think we've all experienced a significant amount of grief over the things that we are all personally losing as things get shut down. And so I, I know that this—it would be devastating for the the athletes, for their families and and their coaches, um, and for the fans for this to not go on. But I don't think i can predict and and i think it would be irresponsible to predict this far out whether those games can be held there are you know when it's a huge mass gathering event so it's not just the the players right it's not just the people on the court or on the field who are in contact with each other um but the the sidelines and the fans and the dorms and the hotels and the restaurants and the village um, so it's it's an intensely social gathering. Um, whether and when the, the Olympic Committee decides that it's possible to go forward, I think they have time and they can continue planning and preparing um, in case it can happen. But they're going to have to make these decisions, I think, sort of rolled – however they can – um, plan out their decisions a little bit might be a better way to think about it than just sort of a go-no-go. No, go. That's going to have to happen, I think, much closer to the time of the games.
0: Yeah, I just, <laughs> again, me, a uh, journalist sitting in his office at home, it seems to me, if you look at the numbers and watch what's happened, it seems pretty impossible that the the the, na- the nations of the world are going to choose to gather together uh, mm-hmm. with fifteen thousand athletes and and I don't know how many tens or hundreds of thousands of fans at sporting events all in one location at the same time. I call me crazy, but that seems pretty impossible to me. And I'm, I think, are you sure you don't want to say that? But I um, <laughs> you know, I know, I know. I'm not going, there's no way you could get me on a plane. I don't even want to go to Maine. Forget about going to an Olympic Games.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really tough call. And four months seems like it's far away, Um, but look what's just happened in the last two months. We've really, I mean, the world is different today than it was just yesterday. So these decisions are coming so fast. I think it's just hard to predict four months out. but I, I think that given the experience of the last two weeks, um, we can start to better sort of take a collective deep breath and start to plan out a little bit more. Um, and as more and more data come in, have a better sense of where the outbreaks are focused. Right. So they've moved from Asia to Europe to the to North America. Um, Is it possible that it's gonna keep circulating around the globe? It's just impossible to know at this point. Um, And I think that that's where the following the best, uh, fastest data that's coming in is is really critical. And and really, I think emphasizing the the ability to slow things down right now so that we can get more testing in place um, and, and think a little bit more about travel restrictions and who we're making those travel restrictions for and how we test people um, who may or may not be symptomatic in a month from now may be very different than what we're able to do right now. So I think all of these things will come into play in making these decisions. Um, But four months is not as far away as any of us uh, probably would hope it is. So I, you know, I'm not a prognosticator, but it does seem like a really difficult call to gather so many countries and, and so many athletes and so many people in one place.
0: Yeah, it's, easy. So it's easy, I think, for a lot of people to understand the issues with um, 15,000 people congregating at a basketball game or even uh, 100 people congregating at a bar. But one of the things that I've seen on social media is a little bit of sh- simply visiting your neighbor or having a friend over for dinner. How... How far should people take this? Should we simply shutter ourselves and and rely for human interaction exclusively on social media? Or is it, I guess, I I, I know you're probably not going to say it's okay or not, but what are the things that people should be thinking about if they want to have a friend over for dinner or if they want to visit their neighbor?
1: I think that's such an important point, really. We are a social species. We can't really survive without human contact. Um, and I think that it's really important that we really think um, practically and logically about this. So I recently traveled, I came home, and I have decided to stay in my house for a couple of weeks because I traveled to an area that has cases. I was on four different airplanes um, because of connections, so I was in several different airports. and. I feel strongly that given the way my life is organized I can stay home for a couple weeks um, without having much if any contact with other people uh, while I'm make sure that I'm healthy Um, but that's me and the way I can organize my life now my husband is in the home with me um, and so we've Uh, it's a little hard to socially distance with when you live with somebody and I'm not sick. So I'm, you know, we're just being careful and, and really trying to, to minimize contact. We take our dog out in our neighborhood for walks and we wave to our neighbors and we say hello from a distance. Um, so we're not really, um, uh, Getting into a particularly close contact with anybody right now on the other hand if you've been home and you haven't been traveling and you have not been in contact with anybody who's been sick and you live in a community where there has not been rampant uh, community transmission then I think it's perfectly fine to have your neighbors over for dinner to check in on neighbors who might need some assistance with something in their home or to get groceries um, to drive somebody to it to uh, appointments uh, unless they are very sick in which case you know you want to take steps to prepare to protect yourself. So I think there are things you can do if people are healthy um, and you can go for a walk together, you can have somebody over for dinner if you haven't had uh, t- too many exposures um, I, I would say you also have to use a little bit of um, thought about, who those people are and what their risks are, if they've been exposed or if they might be particularly vulnerable. Um, but then again, you wanna be careful to not isolate people who might already be socially isolated. So I think it's a little bit of using common sense. Um, in our community, we have had some cases, but not. A, it was sort of clustered in one group. Um, and so we haven't seen a lot of community transmission here. And so there, is still, there are still people um, going off to work I can I see my neighbors driving off to to do their their things Um, the schools are closed but it was spring break this week anyway Um, so I think it's just a matter of using some common sense not gathering in large groups I would say don't um, have a huge neighborhood party because you don't know where everybody has been in terms of their contacts but I think we have to be careful to not um, isolate ourselves overly and certainly not to isolate people who might need our help.
0: Well, that's such a great advice. And and yeah, you're absolutely right. We are social beings. And it's, you know, I, I see that you talk about the, um, uh, you know, the weighing the costs and benefits of everything. And I guess ultimately, that's really what you have to do. You have to weigh the, the potential cost and the potential benefit and know that, uh, you you could be doing self-harm by literally being by yourself for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time.
1: Yes, and reaching out to people is really important. you know I, I was talking with my parents who are elderly the other day they live in North Carolina and they've really been very they're very careful and they've been you know washing their hands a lot and staying home when they when they can, but they did go grocery shopping. You know they had a a friend's husband recently passed away and they've decided not to go to the funeral services because they are very vulnerable they're in their 80s and i think that um that's just they've just decided that for them the the risk benefit was was just in the for them staying home was the safer option um and for other people uh that's not an option you have to be able to to comfort your friends and your loved ones. So, you know, for me, I face the, the thought every day, if my parents need me, I'm getting on a plane and I'm gonna go be with them if they become sick or if they, with this virus or anything else. That's, you know, part of our family life is to take care of each other. So it's all about individually and organizationally weighing the risks and benefits and deciding what is going to uh, make the most sense in that situation.
0: Well, Stephanie I, Stephanie, I really appreciate your time. Um, I, I end every podcast by asking people uh, with the same question. I think it's particularly pertinent uh, now, given that we do have a lot of free time and we will be diving into movies. Who's your favorite character from Lord of the Rings? <laughs>
1: um, I think, oh, wow, that's really hard. I'd have to say my favorite character is probably Legolas. I like the way you can walk on top of the snow.
0: <laughs> I would say half of the people that I've asked have said Legolas. He's, he was the breakout hit.
1: I, yeah, I think from the movies, it would definitely be Legolas. I think in the book, of course, Tom Bombadil is everyone's favorite, isn't he?
0: Right, <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, well, again, thank you, thank you for your time. Take care of yourself and your family, and, and, and I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Be well. It was a great pleasure.
0: I should note that I found Stephanie through Juliana Grant, who is a public health specialist, infectious disease specialist. Um, and I found her blog a few weeks ago. It's at Juliana Grant, that's dot com backslash blog. And she has, for the last few weeks, been talking about kind of what we're seeing now. Uh, I... It was a couple weeks ago when I started reading her that I realized that this was way bigger than we expected or that we understood at the time. But even I reading Juliana's blogs couldn't have predicted any of this. Anyhow if you want to learn more about what we're looking at, you go to julianagrant.com backslash blog. I hope to be back next week with another guest talking about the the, the wonders of the Olympics. Uh, but who knows what we'll be dealing with a week from today. Anyhow, I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you are taking the advice of healthcare professionals. And I hope you are enjoying the Outsports podcasts. Um, you know, We're going to be continuing to provide these podcasts for the foreseeable future. And in part because we know people are cooped up in their houses. And hearing somebody else's voice is, is not a bad thing. Anyhow, again, I hope you take care and we'll talk to you next week.